0: Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers what used to be known as the war on terror or what we call the long war. Um, uh, look, the, uh, the U.S. was eager to end the endless wars, but the jihadists get a vote and they're still fighting to this day. Today, we're going to discuss a little bit of that. Uh, some recent events in, uh, Somalia and Mali. Our guests today are Caleb Weiss, a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and longtime contributor to FDD's Long War Journal. And now also a pleasure to welcome Andrew Tobin. Um, this will be his first appearance on the show. He's one of our contributors at the Long War Journal. And, um, if you're not aware of Andrew, um, but you followed our coverage of Afghanistan last summer, Andrew was, uh, instrumental in helping me keep that map updated, keeping getting the assessments. Caleb played a big part in the past doing this as well. So I, I want to thank you two gentlemen for for all your work uh, over the years, for uh, helping the Lone War Journal be what it is. Uh, say hello,
1: everyone. So thanks for having me back. Uh, it's good to be back. And I just want to say Andrew is definitely the real MVP over the summer, keeping everything on track and, and, you know, able for us to do what we did.
0: Yeah, it was really important. That, yeah. Thanks. Thanks again, Andrew. That was a f- great work.
2: Yep. Thanks for having me here. It's the first podcast, hopefully not the last. Uh, but I really appreciate working with both of you. You've Learned so much already.
0: No. It's a, it's you. you it's been fantastic to work with, and uh, we're we're you know we're happy to help. Uh, so you know today we're gonna we're gonna start off or right now we're gonna start off with Somalia. There's a, been a, a string of high profile attacks in the capital of Mogadishu over the past month, uh, particularly and two um, just this week. But before we get to that, in the wider context of, of Somalia and Shabab, which is Al Qaeda's branch in Africa, in East Africa, particularly, um, very active in Somalia, um, we're going to discuss the, the upcoming elections because we have to, it is all of these attacks. Everything is in the context of Shabab's efforts to take control of Somalia, central, southern and central Somalia, as it did well over a decade ago. ago. Um, and the elections are one of the things that jihadist groups like to thwart. So, Andrew, give us a tell us a little bit about the, the current elections in Somalia. You know, just give us a brief overview of, of what has been going on here.
2: Sure. So the main point to note here is that the Somali elections have been delayed, delayed, and then delayed again, uh, as there's continued disputes between the president, uh, commonly known as Formaggio, and the prime minister, Roble, uh, and their political parties. So to take a step back and look at, kind of Somalia's uh, electoral system or uh, governmental system uh, has a very complex parliamentary system in which the state legislatures and clan delegates, who are typically the clan elders, uh, pick the lawmakers for the national parliament. These MPs in the lower house then go on to choose the president. So there's really a lot of weight placed on these parliamentary elections, uh, which is why they're the real focal point for every major political actor in Somalia, whether they're legitimate government actors or even al-Shabaab. Uh, so the original elections were scheduled to take place back in February of 2021, so February of last year. Uh, however, the date came and went, and no votes took place. Uh, so according to his opponents, this left uh, President Formaggio as an illegitimate president without a mandate. Um, and this sparked ele- uh, electoral, electorally-driven protests in Mogadishu that really engulfed the capital city. So violence really spread from these protests as candidate security details, armed individuals, and even government forces engaged in firefights with one another. Um, And troops took up defensive positions at various points in the city, which really led many to believe that this could be the reemergence or the resurgence of civil war uh, over Mogadishu. Throughout the next year, these elections have been scheduled and rescheduled multiple times, as politicians on all sides are accusing each other of manipulating the elections or paying off the clan elders in order to uh, benefit their party. So in April, violence struck Mogadishu once again, as Farmaajo attempted to extend his term by another two years. Uh, and then these electoral disputes came to a head once again in December, as uh, Farmaggio attempted to suspend the Prime Minister Roble over corruption allegations. Uh, And this ultimately stemmed from attempts from Formaggio to uh, consolidate his political base and sideline a rival in order to benefit his party in the upcoming election. Uh, However, Roble rejected these attempts and um, declared uh, Formaggio illegitimate. So at this point, both the two main political actors are deeming each other to be illegitimate. Um, And again, in December, this led troops aligned with either politician to mobilize and uh, take up defensive positions which once again led to this fear of uh, conflict stemming. And the most problematic aspect of this, uh, at least from a counterterrorism perspective or counterinsurgency perspective, is that these troops are being pulled from the fight against al-Shabaab to their political uh, loyalties. So they're really being uh, used in this kind of uh, illegitimate system that really erodes the fight against al-Shabaab. And then just to look at where things stand today, uh, as of yesterday, it looked like 246 of the 275 lower house seats have been filled, so this is about 90, uh, 90%, excuse me. Uh, this is according to the Electoral Commission in Somalia. Uh, the majority of those seats remaining to be filled are in Hirshabal, which is Haran and Middle shebel uh, the federal state, as well as Jubaland. Uh, and then these elections are set to conclude at the end of the month, so March 31st, Uh but there's really a lot of question about whether this deadline will come and go as the others have, especially as we witness attacks in the past couple of days that threaten to delay the elections further.
0: Do we have any indication that who uh, who is on top at the at this point in the count uh, for the presidency?
2: At, at this point, I do not. Um, I'm not sure if there's a really clear estimate of who's going to come out on top. I I can almost guarantee that Fermaggio will not be that actor, but uh in terms of which candidate i cannot say
0: so do do we think that there's any uh chance of you know the ele- do, will the elections be uh viewed as legitimate depending on who, who what the outcome is of this do we think that this we experienced a very similar thing in afghanistan by the way with uh you know between uh, abdullah and uh and jeez oh, man it's been so long i forget the name of the la- uh, the last president of afghanistan um and this you know created a situation a constant tension between Ghani and abdullah and the political parties do we think that we're going to this will just carry over or i mean I, I realize it's difficult to predict these things but you know they it's one. this is sort of a constant theme that we've seen in in these countries racked with war that when we try to hold democratic elections and build a democratic government that these tribal and clan uh, rivalries often take uh, primacy to become more important to the local actors than fighting against the groups that are just trying to kill them and overthrow the, the government in general.
2: Yeah. So my estimate will probably see the continuation of these conflicts through like even past the election. Um, I think various clans don't deem each other as legitimate already. So I think that the ongoing disputes and allegations of, of various actors paying off clan elders or uh, gerrymandering so to speak, uh, will just continue fueling this instability and this lack of faith or legitimacy of the federal government.
0: So, in in this environment, uh, just over this past week, we had two major attacks: um, one on the twenty second and one on the twenty third. Um, Andrew, give us a little background: what happened? Um, who, you know, there is always a lot of claims. from the government will say it repelled the attack. Shabab says it was uh, successful. What what happened in both of these attacks?
2: Sure. So just to start off with the attack on the 22nd, uh, so this was a relatively small assault against the main international hub in Mogadishu, uh, what's known as Helane or Helane Military Base, uh, which is right next to Mogadishu's international airport. Uh, this base houses the U.S. Embassy, the AMISOM and AU headquarters in Mogadishu, the U.N. Assistance Mission to Somalia, and the majority of diplomats in Mogadishu. So this is really an important international hub. Um, from a very tactical perspective, or like looking at what happened in the attack, what we really saw was only two Shabab gunmen disguise themselves as airport workers or base employees and attempt to breach the military base. They use small arms and hand grenades um, to kill what's believed to be six security forces. I don't believe they've updated that figure uh, in the past 24 hours, but six security forces uh, and injure an additional three. They also used mortars uh, from the outside to damage Amazon buildings, uh, including their headquarters. Uh, but both gunmen were killed by uh, security forces within the base. In their official statement, Shabab claimed that they killed four senior Western officials and 13 African crusaders, which is their word for Amazon trainers or troops. Um, they claim to have set fire to parts of the complex as well. And pictures of the event look like there was smoke billowing, but that's likely just from a, a gas canister that was struck, uh, but not, not actually fire set. Um, Shabab claims this attack was designed to expel the disbelievers from the Muslim land and liberate Somalia from the Crusaders, you know, typical jihadist language and there. Uh, but really, the attack wasn't a huge strategic success. It didn't really accomplish a whole lot uh, in terms of what the attack showed, except for showing that the most secure place in Mogadishu, this base, was vulnerable to some degree of attack. It, it wasn't a major attack and there wasn't major casualties sustained um, from Amazon forces or from the federal government there but it did demonstrate that they have the ability to to attack that. Uh, Looking at the second of these attacks, so this is the 23rd, we saw Shabab conduct dual suicide bombings in Beledwane. So to run through what happened here, uh, the first bombing was a suicide bombing within the Lama Galay uh, military base in Beledwane. This base is home to the uh, Hirchebel Regional Presidential Palace, which was being used as a polling site for the ongoing parliamentary elections. Uh, witnesses described the bomber run up to a Somali legislator named Amina Mohamed Abdi, uh, embrace her, and then detonate his explosive device. And then as military vehicles brought the victims of this first bombing to the main hospital in Beldwain, Somalia, uh, excuse me, Shabab detonated a second device, a uh, vehicle-based IED, just outside the hospital. Uh, reports estimate that these bombings killed a total of 48 people, including uh, Amina Mohamed Abdi, who was running for re-election, as well as another parliamentary candidate. Uh, Muhammad, so this uh, parla- uh, parliamentarian who was killed, was described as a fearless critic of the sitting government, an advocate for uh, Ikran Talil, who was a female intelligence officer uh, who was disappear- disappeared in 2021. And her disappearance, as well as Muhammad's uh, critique of her disappearance, contributed to these elect- uh, disputes between Roble and Fermatier that we saw throughout this past year.
1: Yeah, just to step in here for a little bit, I think the NISA thing is really kind of you know, I wouldn't say it's like the major or the main thing at play here for why there's so much government infighting. I think you nailed that on the head of you know this tribal or clan infighting, you know, as well as like the the political disputes between Farmajo and Roble. But the Nisa thing, I think, really needs to be stated here that um, it, it's also you know subject to clanism. It's also subject to being you know the will of you know whatever political persons in power who's, who's using it. In this case, it's Farmajo and his right hand man. Um, Fahad Yassin. Uh, Fahad Yassin is, you know, former NISA chief or deputy chief or whatever, you know, high-ranking NISA official, um, but he was removed. And now he's, a you know, an advisor to Formaggio. But he has been super critical at, at politicizing NISA, um, especially making certain NISA, foreign-trained NISA units at that, um, pretty much the the military arm of Formaggio and, and himself. Um, so a lot of these units have been involved in, you know, inter fighting or, you know, clashes with rival government forces that are loyal to another government official. Um, so Nisa, you know, this whole thing with the, mis- you know, the disappearing, you know, female intelligence officer is rolled into this whole political, you know, turmoil of not only is Nisa politicized thanks to Fahad Yassin and Farmajo and, and others. is you have this female officer go missing, they blame it on Shabab. Farmajo and Fahad Yassin, you know, they they probably has something to do with it. It's not confirmed, but that's what they've been alleged to have it had something to do with it and tried to cover it up uh, by saying it was Shabab who, who, assassinated her. But it's this, this background is what has caused, you know, the whole infighting revolving around Nisa um, that goes into the wider political infighting that Andrew eloquently described earlier.
0: Yeah, so there has been a series of attacks in uh, Somalia, particularly over the last several months Attacks against elections, government officials, military—not um, just the last several months, but several years. Caleb, can you put these put these attacks in in a wider context here? Tell us what is Shabab's strategy, um, how strong are they, uh, or how 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 able are they to actually oppose the Somali government inside of Mogadishu and the surrounding areas?
1: So I wait to conceptualize this like you know traditional IR. Diplomacy of, you know, hard power and soft power, the hard power being their, you know, actual physical attacks against polling stations, what they did, you know, earlier this week in Bell um, when they assassinated, you know, governors in, in Portland and tried to assassinate the governor of Bay last year. You know, those are hard power attacks that they're designed to disrupt, physically disrupt the elections. And I think, you know, last month they did that coordinated assault across Mogadishu that was, you know, designed to help disrupt the elections. Um, so while they're doing this hard power, which I don't know if it's really had that much of an effect on the elections, the elections are still ongoing, the elections are, will still be ongoing, but it's certainly a reminder that they're not safe, that that they will try to disrupt those. Um, but while they're doing the hard power, they're also doing these soft power approaches, which to me, I think is more dangerous or more you know insidious in the long term. Um, and by soft power, what I mean is they are doing these, you know, clan councils with various clans across central and southern Somalia with, you know, clan elders and basically sitting them down and being like, you know, hey, if you don't, you know, if you don't participate in these elections, if you get your people to not participate in these elections, because, you know, as Andrew, you know, alluded to earlier, the complex system of Somalia's, you know, election system is that the clan elders, you know, indirectly, you know, vote for these, these delegates. So really the clan elders, you know, however many tens of thousands of them have sort of significant power over somali's you know parliament so shabab will sit these guys down and be like hey if you don't support this we'll forgive you we'll give an amnesty to you and your people we'll try not to attack you you know we will give you certain things in return don't support it um and you know there's been several clans you know again this is propaganda this is what shabab is saying i don't know what's actually happening on the ground but and certainly in terms of their local propaganda you know there's there's a lot of these you know Clan councils that they're being, you know, promoted online of, you know, look at this clan, they agreed to not participate. Look at this other clan, they agreed not to participate. And then you see these large gatherings of, you know, dozens of clan elders at these meetings. You know, how much, you know, how many of those elders, you know, represent whatever percentage of the overall clan elders of Somalia, I don't know, but it's certainly a large amount that they're showing. And to me, that is more dangerous than the, the, you know, the hard power, the hard power, you know, you're going it's going to kill a lot of people. And that's, that's always, you know, terrible, but it's the soft power is, is, is me the more political long game that Shabab is playing. And they have been playing for a long time.
0: There's a reason uh, we refer to Shabab as the Taliban of Africa. And you could Caleb and Andrew just laid this out perfectly. Um, you know, as the taliban was working to militarily take over the country it whittled away behind the scenes with the with the various tribal elders and uh, pride away government officials and even uh, elements of the military and police in its march it was the the soft and the hard power mixed in it's a very effective uh, strategy uh, that is, that Shabab is act executing. It's Shabab has a long game. Um, I'm Bill Raggio. This is Generation Jihad. Today, our guests are Caleb Weiss. He's a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and, and a longtime contributor to the Long War Journal and Andrew Tobin. Um, he's also a contributor to the Long War Journal. So next, let's take a look. What are, what are the future implications here? Uh, uh, for what Shabab is doing, uh, do we do we will we see Shabab continue down this path? Will it innovate in any further ways? Um, can we expect an increase of violence? To, to talk a little bit more about that, Caleb.
1: I think an increase in violence is probably likely, and by increase in violence, I mean further attacks on election sites or anything regarding elections. Um, they've made it very clear that they're you know directly going after. MPs are going after members of government they are going after you know anyone involved in the whole election process or government um, even during last month's you know coordinated assault across Mogadishu one of the attacks was on the personal residence of a Somali politician um, and of course you know, as Andrew mentioned earlier the suicide bombing a couple of days ago I mean the the suicide bomber literally went up and, and grabbed that MP uh, and, and killed her um, so I think that is probably going to happen more in the future especially you know if these elections keep getting delayed, that just feeds into Shabab's propaganda that you know these elections are flawed. They don't follow the religion of Allah. That's why they're they're failing, and you can't secure them. And we're showing you that you can't secure them. So at least from a propagandist, you know, message or at least you know the terms of winning the hearts and minds. That's what I would do if I were Shabab, and I hate to you know put it in that context. But think about if if you were in their shoes and you're trying to establish this you know Islamic state in Somalia. Best thing to do is show that the elections are flawed, and they can't be secured. So you continue attacks on it, and uh, I really think you know we'll see more of that um, as the weeks go by. If, especially if elections get delayed again, um, and you know, Shabab has shown uh, you know an incredible propensity to use suicide bombings for assassinations, and I think that will continue. Um, in addition to their normal suicide bombing operations on military camps and and, and other things, but especially for assassinations they have done that, you know, they, they perfected that method almost, you know, a lot of the assassinations they've done over the past few years have been the result of suicide bombings. Um, You know, and, and there's a lot of talk of, you know, DOD, especially AFRICOM talking about wanting troops back in Somalia. Um, You know, of course, you know, troops left under the Trump administration. um, They're still in the region, especially in Kenya. And they do, you know, presumably intelligence or anything else in Somalia, but not physically in Somalia. So AFRICOM and DOD is wanting troops back into Somalia, but I'm not sure if that's actually going to happen. Um, I've not seen any indication that it will happen. Now there's been, what, one or two drone strikes um, this year? I think one, maybe two, under the Biden administration.
2: One confirmed. Yeah another one potential. Yeah.
1: So I mean that that to me seems more likely as you see, you know the Biden administration doing more drone strikes in Somalia than what they have been doing um, than actually sending troops back in, but you know who knows, you know. But I think uh, it was an AFRICOM general who stated, you know, earlier this month or last month that Shabab is surging. You know, and that's certainly true. Um what the US does or what the US can even do to, you know, stop that at this point, I don't know. Um, but it's certainly not a good future for for the you know state of security for Somalia,
0: we've seen had I can't recall who it was, but I know a senior U.S. general had said that U.S. visibility in, in Somalia has been decreasing just as well as it was in in Afg- Afghanistan. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's you know that those 700 troops that President Trump withdrew, you know, in in this effort to end the endless wars, I think we've seen this, you know we've gained our Shabaab, has uh, regained the initiative. Uh, do we have, do, Caleb, a couple of years ago, we had a, a general, I believe it was the head of Afrikan, who had said that Shabaab controlled about 25% of the country. Do we have any understanding? Do you think that situation's improved since then, gotten worse? Do you have a, any, any rough estimate? And I'm not holding you to this. I realize you probably don't have a number, but w- what do you think? What do you think? Is Shabab improving its territorial control in Southern and Central Africa?
1: I say this all the time. I say it to you all the time. That number is way too low. Wait, 25% is way too low. You look at their overall operations and how many people Shabab actually has and, and what they're doing, not only like the hard power attacks, but the soft power stuff, their their social services, their infrastructure, their their clan-based politics stuff. The the amount of territory they control, and, and again, I need the caveat, control here means influence or physically control is way over 25%. Like I, I personally think it's closer to forty, uh, maybe even higher, maybe a little lower. But forty seems more likely to meet given how much they do across southern Somalia and now even in, you know, central Somalia. And central Somalia has been a you know concerted effort by Som- by Shabbat for the past year or two to really expand there. Um so 25% is definitely too low at this point. Yeah, that's I mean it is an old number and you know the no, sure. And, and, you, and again, you have to be careful of what you mean by control. And I think you know that better than anyone, especially when you try to do Afghanistan of control does not, We I don't necessarily mean that they are physically holding all this ground. Now they are in some cases, but for the most cases, they're probably influencing it more so than the, the Somali government, which in my book, that would mean Shabab controls effectively. That territory.
0: Yeah, let me give an example of that in in Afghanistan. There, there I just remember there was one district in I believe it was in Jawsdown province, and the shaba or yeah shaba right the Taliban was uh, dictating to the te- the teachers with the teach in school, collecting taxes, doing everything, um, doing everything but overtly showing control, collecting teachers' salaries, uh, all these all these things and at some point you look at this and you're like that's soft control but it's con- we everyone in that district it was clear knew who ran the show they may not have marched the military out into the district center but guess what once the Taliban began their offensive it was one of the first districts to flip so that's what you know there's a lot of subjectivity to the question
1: of control and
0: um you know and
1: right i mean when we, when we throw this at you like even in some areas of mogadishu the, the civilians are paying two levels of taxes they're paying taxes to the the federal government and to Shabab. I mean, Shabab's probably not physically controlling those areas, but they're still levying taxes. So, what does that mean? How does that factor in? I I don't have the answer, but you know, it's something that we need to think about.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a level of influence is it contested? You know, the, the, you know, then there's military side, there's the soft power side or the political side. Very difficult, but I you know I think we all know at least with Afghanistan it all. Um, you know, Tom made a joke and, you know, none of this is funny, but if we didn't have dark humor, we'd have none. Um, I want to say it was about a, six months before Afghanistan collapsed. He's, he, you know, he, I'm updating the map, Andrew and I, and some Tom sends me over an image and he's like, Hey, Bill, I got a new picture of the map of Afghanistan. It was just all white with the Taliban emblem flag, you know, and it's like you could tell where this thing was going, but, uh, yeah, there's just a, it, it, it is a very complicated, uh, issue um you know whether we call it controlled contested influence we know that these groups have a presence and are influencing events far greater than often far greater than what people perceive uh so we're going to move on to uh, our last subject here uh, in Mali there's been some uh, recent developments particularly in northern Mali uh this is a country that is uh, racked with uh Jihadist insurgencies. There's been a coup there, a bit of political inst- instability. You know, you could, I think you could put Mali in a, and you could put uh, Somalia on each side of the coin and flip it and figure out which one, which becomes the next jihadist emirate. But Caleb, there's some been uh, happenings going on in the, um, uh, particularly up in the north uh, with the Islamic State. Can you uh, give us a little detail on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those cases where I wish that, you know, we could throw a map up for viewers, because this is going to be, for listeners, this is going to be pretty, you know, in the weeds when I'm trying to keep it, you know, pretty above board here. Um, but in Mali's extreme north, you have the Manaka region, which Manaka is like kind of, you know, it's a desert region. It borders, you know, Algeria and, and Niger, but especially along the Nigerian border, um, this is where a lot of massacres have been taking place over the last month. Uh, and these are brutal, nasty massacres. Um, I think the latest estimate, and this is coming from Tuareg activists and journalists in the area, is roughly around 400 civilians have been murdered since March 8th. Um, and really, this is a, you know, another spat, you know, in this longstanding conflict between particularly two nominally pro-government Tuareg militias in Mali's north. Um, the movement for the Salvation of Azawad, MSA, and the MGAD, Tuareg, and Ally Self-Defense Movement, or Gadia. Um, these two have primarily been France's and Mali's, you know, CT partner in that area for the past several years. Um, although support for them has has dwindled in the past, you know, more recent two to three years, especially from, from France. Um, but these these two Tuareg groups have been, you know, going back and forth between battling and you know, doing their own massacres against, you know, communities that, that support the Islamic State. Um, you know, these two groups in the Islamic State fought a vicious war in 2018. Um, there's been sporadic clashes between the two since then. Um, but really, earlier this month, uh, the Islamic State assassinated a senior officer of the MSA. Um, a few days later, the MSA went and attacked the Islamic State, killed eight of their fighters, which prompted the Islamic State to, re- you know, return in kind. And what the Islamic State did is on March eighth, they went back to the village where they assassinated that officer, and murdered roughly 176 civilians. Yeah, like just insane amount of people. Um, and since then, since March eighth, there's just been a vicious cycle of violence between those two Tuareg groups um, and the Islamic State. But really, the main victims are you know members of what's called the Doasak. The Doasak are ethnic group in northern Mali, um, especially in that border region between Mali and Niger, Um, they're often lumped together with Tuareg, um, but they're actually a separate group to the Tuareg. But regardless of that, the Dilesak are this community that's essentially being massacred by the Islamic State. And they're doing that not necessarily because of their ethnicity. There are Dilesak members of the Islamic State, um, but primarily because MSA and Gadia are kind of like the the protection forces for those people, especially in, in that specific area. So by targeting those civilians, you're targeting really the heart of those two groups and and their whole MO for what they're doing in that area. Um, I think there's been seven or eight, maybe even more villages hit uh, since March 8th, Uh, you know, massacres of, you know, 40 people, 76 people in one, 15 another, 20 in another, and you round it all up and it it, it is over 400 people um, have been killed since since March 8th. Um, And again, just a Cycle of violence between you know, the ongoing local conflict between the Islamic State and these two Tuareg groups. However, you know, this gets into larger geopolitical questions of, you know, France is weaving. You know, and, and France, you know, they tried to help the MSA and Gaddi in 2018 um, in their war with the Islamic State, um, which also saw rounds of vicious massacres like this, again, primarily against the Delas that France didn't really get a hold of, um, you know, they, they tried, they did airstrikes, they helped support the MSA and Gadia with, you know, intelligence and stuff, but, you know, still those massacre still happened. Um, and now, you know, they're leaving. And, you know, in this round of violence, Mali tried to step in, uh, Mali conducted airstrikes in support of MSA. Um, but, you know, that's, that's Mali and airstrikes, you know, who, it's, it's not necessarily to the same degree of scale as, as what France could do. So, my question is, you know, if France could barely, you know, contain the 2018 massacre, how is Mali going to fare today? Um, you know, especially if these massacres continue and there's no indication that they're stopping. So, you know, this is really the question that that you know we all need to ask: of France is leaving, their European allies are leaving. Will more, more stuff like this happen in the future? And sadly, I, I think yes. And you know, I don't know what or who is there to even you know make a concerted effort to try to stop this.
0: Yeah, Caleb, that's a, it's an excellent point. There's just implications of staying, and there's the, and there's uh implications for leaving, and I think this is what we're witnessing right now in northern Mali. And you know, I I similar you know thoughts when you're talking about you know the French. I, I think of the U.S. withdrawal from from Somalia, the U.S. withdrawal, or once the U.S. began drawing down in Afghanistan, it was clear. It's been clear these governments were struggling with. U.S. or with Western help, it's unrealistic to think they could manage these situations without um, without a, a Western or a foreign presence. So I, I think it-
2: And just to back to Somalia really quickly, uh, we're also seeing the African Union mission in Somalia withdrawing within the end of the month. So they're transitioning now uh, from Amazon, which is primarily combat mission, to Atmis, which is going to be mostly just training um, Somali combat forces. But they're- essentially pulling 22,000 combat troops out of Somalia and replacing them with significantly less trainers uh, in order to help the Somali military. So we're likely to see almost the same. Yeah, that's
0: back. an excellent point, Andrew. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, so, and one of the reasons why I started that map on Afghanistan was when the U S began the transition from being the active, um, you know, for, for active security in Afghanistan, To, um, taking a supporting brawl or the train, uh, train, advise and assist mission. That sounds a lot like what's, what's happening with the African Union or Amazon in Somalia. And things began to, it was a slow degrade, but it began degrading slowly. And that's why I tracked that. And, um, I think that's something that we're all looking at, um, closely in Somalia. So great, great point, Andrew. Uh, Akhil, do you have anything to add to that or?
1: Not necessarily to Somalia. I, I just think in Mali, uh, it's just it's. I, I just need to emphasize enough that literally 400 people have been killed in less than a month, and it's barely registering in any Western press. And that it's that bothers me like nothing else. Um, so I'm glad that we're taking the time to talk about it, um, and hopefully more people wake up to what's actually happening because that's it's absurd. That you know this is happening and nothing is, no one's even talking about it.
0: Yeah, the, the, the Ukraine situation and understandably so, but not rightly so, um, has been sucking a lot of the oxygen up. And, you know, I, I am glad as well that we're taking the time to address these, these, you know, this is a massacre by any stretch uh, that should be front page news. And it's, um, you know, we're probably the only people on the planet outside of, you know, locals in Africa. Um, who are discussing this, and it it really is uh, is a shame. Uh, it, it deserves. I
1: mean, more if you it. just, I mean, if you look on Twitter, it's pretty much just like the Tuareg activists who are you know reporting on this and sharing images and sharing video, like screaming into the void of you know look what's happening to us, look what's happening to the Doisak. and then unfortunately the engagement is not there, and, and it should
0: be. It's you know some of this is moving on to the next crisis, like right, hey, we end we're ending our endless wars um so nothing's happened right you know let's let's go on and support ukraine well like guess what the last people you were supporting are still there and they're still suffering under the the hands of oppressive people the of violent evil people in my opinion the jihadists are which what the islamic state's doing is you know we've seen this across multiple theaters tell us uh, caleb a little bit about the islamic state's propaganda how are they trying to spin these massacres in northern Mali. what are they saying about it what's their messaging
1: it was such a good segue talking about violent evil people into this because it ties directly into their propaganda um their propaganda is basically just saying they're targeting msa um they're just saying you know they're targeting this apostate militia you know we're going after the the militants you know making no mention that you know the primary targets are civilians yeah like they've definitely clashed with msa a lot the msa itself has reported that a lot of clashes with the Islamic State in that area in, over the last month, but the it exclusively focus on, you know, the the military element of it is completely omitting all the violent, terrible stuff they're doing to civilians, and, that, and that's for a reason. You know, by omitting that, they could you know go down this ideologically or religiously, you know, more viable target. So they to them and their supporters of, of justifying it. You know, by coming out and saying, you know, we're killing civilians, you know, it makes it a little harder to say, you know, to rationalize it even to their supporters. You know, they could say that they're, you know, apostates, they could say they're infidel or whatever. But at the, end of the day, at the end of the day, they're civilians. By saying that, you know, we're only targeting the military, there's a little more leeway for them ideologically and religiously, um, which I think is complete, you know, bullshit that they're just completely, I don't know, they're, they're masquerading as like, you know, this, you know, virtuous group combating you know an apostate military but no they're actually killing civilians yeah it's it's classic uh, jihadist rhetoric i think we've seen
0: this time and time again you know and uh, you know uh, they'll make ex- whatever excuses they need well um you know it's unfortunately another downer episode of generation jihad but there's often not a lot too good to talk to talk about um in in these situations Caleb, Andrew, it's uh, been a pleasure to have you on and to discuss the uh, ongoing situations in um, um, in Mali and, and in Somalia. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, and thanks, everyone, for uh, listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.